Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. James Field, who's the founder and CEO of Lab Genius. James and the Lab Genius team are at the forefront of revolutionizing antibody discovery, and I think more broadly, drug and therapeutic discovery by combining really high quality, what you might call ML grade data that we're going to talk about today to do antibody discovery, integrating machine learning, artificial intelligence, and I think pretty sophisticated robotics. So James, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have the conversation today. Thanks very much, Patrick. It's a great to be here. I would love to start with the origin of the idea. I know you were doing a PhD, really focused in probably a, a similar, but not exactly the same area that you're working in today. And at some point you had an idea that maybe you'd start a company and try to do something a little bit different. Tell me about that uh, moment when the idea first came into your mind, what it was, and then what changed or didn't change maybe to where you are today, six or seven years later at this point, probably. Well, that's right. So I'm a protein engineer by training and I did that master's and PhD level. And when I was doing my PhD in protein engineering, it was happening at this magical time when the cost of DNA sequencing and synthesis was coming down. There was incredible innovation going on in the space of robotic automation and compute as well. But juxtaposition to this, we were still engineering and designing proteins rationally. And when you sit down and you're looking at a crystal structure of a protein and making decisions around how to engineer it, and then when you test that molecule and find it doesn't work, you end up banging your head against the wall and thinking, hey, look, there must be a better way to do this. And of course, you look into nature and you see all of this incredible complexity that's been driven through the, the natural process of evolution. And that kind of aha moment for me was to what extent we could start to bolt on and couple some of these novel technologies to evolutionary inspired methods to start engineering protein therapeutics in a more streamlined and intelligent way. And that was really the genesis of the business. Amazing. So what, for those who aren't all that familiar with protein engineering, what does the status quo or the or the traditional way of doing it look like and, and what do you guys do that's very different? So in the traditional way in which protein engineers would create and build and modify these molecules would be to kind of pour over these crystal structures, look at, they sort of maybe rotate them around on a screen. And maybe you'd have like an expert who'd spent his whole career working on one particular protein and you go to him or to her, and they look at the crystal structure, they point to a residue and say, hey, I think we should make a substitution mutation here or a deletion mutation there. And a lot of protein engineering was sort of driven by that kind of very rational design approach. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But the challenge, from my perspective at least, is there's an inherent coupling there between a human's understanding of the way in which that molecule works and then our ability to engineer it. And candidly, when you look at a protein structure, to most of us, there's no intuition there. There's no human intuition as to how these molecules work. And, and really, that's not surprising in the sense we didn't evolve to engineer protein therapeutics. So the approach that we take is a very kind of data-driven one. We generate a lot of data in a wet lab, and we do that at very high throughput and concentrate on making sure that data is very high quality. And then we combine that high throughput experimentation process with machine learning to build models that are descriptive across several different features of interest. So these could be features around developability, but also function. And once you've got those disparate models that are descriptive of your different features of interest, that's at the point at which you can start optimizing across it. And this is really the key bit, really, which is this is an approach that enables the co-optimization of protein therapeutics across multiple properties of interest versus what's done traditionally, which is sequential optimization. And of course, the challenge with sequential optimization is you might optimize for one property, 
and then suddenly find you've de-optimized for another and you're back to square one. So this is a very efficient way in which you can engineer these molecules. Yeah. And I guess the human approach, I would imagine, probably lends itself to this sequential optimization, right? We can only hold so many things, even if you're an expert in a particular protein, you can only hold so much of the search space in your head at once. And it's difficult and probably expensive to predict if I change this piece, how is it going to affect the how easy it is to manufacture, for example, and then this other piece may affect the potency. But do you know all those things at once? It's probably very difficult to do that in practice, right? That's right. And the way in which, say, like a rational protein engineer might approach that problem is to collapse down these design rules into something that can be described linguistically. And then you end up with these rules of thumb, which is like, don't include this residue or do include that residue and never include this motif. And something that we've seen time and time again across multiple different programs is when you actually test those rules of thumb, it's a highly context dependent. And we've actually seen real life programs with pharma partners where actually the designs that end up being the most high performing goes against any human intuition. So really, this this kind of underlines the importance of taking more of a kind of data science, mathematically driven approach to the engineering of these molecules. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it kind of reminds me of the way that AI in games like chess has helped some of the best humans to really up their game as well. Because when you watch, there are now many different chess bots that will play against one another. And if you watch Stockfish play against Torch, you as a human, you can actually learn some amazing things because they play the game very differently. So I'm thinking out loud here, but I suspect that probably the humans that you work with really have a lot to benefit from partnering with the machines in this use case as well. Maybe even probably almost certainly more so than in a simple game like chess that's uh, much simpler than the complex game of protein engineering. Well, I think for us, the most interesting piece here is it's actually caused us to really question and redefine what should the, the ultimate relationship between man and machine be when it comes to engineering proteins. And we found, at least through the programs that we've done, that the most powerful coupling of, I guess, human cognition and, and machine intelligence has been one in which the human sets the question and the machine finds the answer. And what I mean by that specifically in the context of protein engineering, is that it's a group of expert protein engineers and data scientists who'll sit down at the beginning of a program and say, here is the area of design space that we want to explore and demarcate that. And that's something that actually really does require you to kind of draw on a lot of human expertise and experience. But then once you set that design space, it's the role of the system, the, the ML-driven process, to actually algorithmically generate the sets of designs and explore it. So I think, at least in our work, that's been the ultimate pairing of man and machine. Yeah. So what? maybe you could give some examples around what that, what does setting that design space look like? Like if I'm a, I don't even know what the role would be, but I'm an, if I'm an antibody scientist in a drug company, for example, what does, what does setting that space look like? Yeah. So if I kind of give you a concrete example here, a lot of the work that we do internally is around the design of T-cell engagers in order to develop molecules that can selectively target cancer cells over healthy cells and kill those. And so in the context of that problem space, when you start to set out a design space that you might want to explore, you'll have to sort of specify things like very specifically, which receptor do I want to target? And against that receptor, how many different epitopes on it am I going to target? And for each epitope, what's the breadth of affinities that I'm going to look at here? What's the valency of the molecule going to be? How many of these different tumor-associated antigen binders am I going to have? What's the linker length between them? And um, what are those linkers made of? So 
when you start to effectively break down the design space into those sort of questions, what it ends up looking like is you have these sort of almost individual piles of Lego bricks for each of the different parts of interest that you're interested you're interested in. And it's the space that you end up exploring is a combinatorial set of those different blocks. And what we certainly find there is when you set the design space, that's something that really does require a lot of understanding of the underlying biology. And I would say broadly, this kind of relationship where it's the human protein engineers who set the question and the machine who answers it. Having said that, we have seen past projects where even though we try and be as unbiased as possible, we're still entering a level of human bias and setting the design space. And it's only when we step back and say relaxed a constraint that we've actually seen we've been able to find the optimal molecule. And what does that feedback loop between wet lab and dry lab look like? So you've got the humans who are framing it and asking the questions. And how do you get that quick cycle time between generate a molecule or set of molecules and tests? Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that part of the process. Yeah. So the approach that we take to explore the design space is an approach called multi-objective Bayesian optimization. And the reason we take this approach is because let's say for a particular project that we're working on, say a T-cell engager project, there's a design space that we want to search that I'm going to make it up now, but brought, say it's 250,000 designs. Experimentally, you could never test that full set in the sorts of assays we're interested in, which are very disease-relevant cell-based assays, so they're inherently quite low throughput. The advantage of taking a computational modeling approach here is that you can sample a subset of the space, build a model that is descriptive of a broader area of the design space, and then uh, query that for the next round of designs. So just to talk you through an example case study here, in the first cycle, an algorithm will generate, say, seven to 800 designs, uh, novel antibody designs. And you could think of that first cycle really as taking a low resolution snapshot of the design space. You're trying to evenly sample it. Then once you generate the data experimentally, and that's a process that takes six weeks, we then feed that back into the model and that data is used to iteratively refine the model. And then the model is able to generate a new set of predictions. Now, I mentioned that we're using an approach called Bayesian optimization. And the rationale here is the advantage of taking that approach is you've got a certain number of shots on goal that you have with every cycle. But with the Bayesian optimization approach, it says this subset of your shots on goal you should use for exploration of new areas of design space. And this second subset you should use for exploiting the design rules that you've already discovered will yield to a high-performing solution. And it's using that kind of very smart sampling approach to the exploration of the design space that enables us to find many different pockets of high performance across quite a broad design space. Yeah, interesting. And I guess you could probably tune that to an extent to say, I want to be more exploratory and creative, or if I have a strong conviction that I want to zoom in on these couple of areas, I'll zoom in a little closer on these areas. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so your, your I guess, your, your prioritization of exploration versus exploitation, that shifts as you go through multiple cycles. So in a first cycle, when you know nothing, you're actually on 100% explore. And then on your last cycle, when you know, look, this is the last cycle I can do, you shift to 100% exploit. And what's beautiful about this approach is the model knows where it has a high degree of uncertainty over its predictions. And it's those are the, the times when it says... I know that my prediction here is uncertain. So I, I'm collecting data against this point so because I can maximize my learning. Right. And so how many candidates then can you practically generate? You said hundreds of thousands is just not something you can do. What is the practical number? 
Yeah, so we have built out in the wet lab through the hard work of an incredibly talented team of wet lab scientists, a process, a design, build, test, learn loop that's both exceptionally quick, but also runs at high throughput. So the way in which that works is we'll start off with a set of between seven and 800 novel antibody designs, each of those being unique designs. We then conduct a mass modular cloning approach where we assemble all the genes to encode each of those unique antibody therapeutics. We then sequence those in-house, and, and that's been an innovation that we've only been able to bring online recently using the oxid nanopore sequencing technology. So we do the in-house sequencing. And then we do expression in a mammalian system. So we get mammalian expressed proteins that are then purified and tested across both developability and functional cell-based assays. Now, of course, as you go through that process, you see a natural amount of attrition, some of that being biological, some of that being process-based. But here you're, you're generating data sets in every six-week cycle of several hundred, at least, of these molecules. And that's sufficient to feed into the models to start building something that has a fair amount of predictive accuracy. Yeah, interesting. And so then at the end of this antibody pipeline, as you mentioned before, you're putting it into then some kind of cell specific assay that helps you get data to answer that question of, am I engaging with the right target? For example, as you can tell, I'm not an antibody expert. So I'm, I'm learning, uh, I'm learning from you. What do those cell assays look like? Are they also pretty challenging to scale or, or can they be done at the scale of hundreds of antibodies in a in relatively fast fashion? Yeah. So I should say that the subset of problems that we work on are antibody engineering problems where the design of the molecule, there's not like a clear link between how the molecule's designed and how it performs. So if you're, say, developing something like, I don't know, like a cytokine antagonist, you know that if you just get like a tighter binder, it's probably going to work better and it'll be a more potent molecule. The space that we work in, we have loads of different design levers that we can pull, and it's really not clear how pulling them impacts the performance of the molecule. So you have to do that test in the context of a, a cell-based assay. And, and that's typical of this next wave of next-generation therapeutic antibodies in areas that are looking at multi-specific, multivalent ones. So in the context of these T-cell engagers that we're we're developing as part of our internal pipeline, we have a high throughput T cell activation assay. And really what that's looking at is you're basically looking at mixing some immune cells with some cancer cells and saying, can your antibody cause your immune cell to selectively be activated in the context of the cancer cell? Now, the reason that we run that assay is because it has a high degree of correlation with a, with a killing assay. But in terms of scaling that activation assay, it has taken a lot of work to miniaturize it and scale it. But probably the thing to really underline at this point is it's actually the richness of the data that's really important that you're generating across like quite a broad titration set, very rich data that you've got multiple repeats in. Because if you want to have a go at a crack at training a, a model using machine learning, you have to really make sure that you've got a rich data set. So we spend a lot of time scaling the throughput of this, but also the quality of the data as well. Yeah. What's the biggest bottleneck right now to getting ultimately the end goal of this is to I think, discover an antibody that can cure cancer, right? Not to oversimplify too much, but with the drug companies that you work with, is the challenge around picking the right antibody in the first place and then the hundreds of millions to billions of dollars spent downstream can be a massive waste and a waste of time, right? If they haven't picked up front, where's the, where's the biggest lever, I guess, to think about how we can go from a world where it takes billions of dollars and 10, 15 years to something that uh, makes a lot more sense? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. So the biggest challenge that everyone here is facing is the failure rate is far too high. And the thesis here is that with a higher quality 
molecule where you're able to hit a more demanding molecular product profile, hopefully we can lower the probability that that molecule will fall down in, in later clinical trials. So the beauty of this approach that we're taking here is it enables us to explore a much, much larger area of design space and give you molecules that you never would have found using conventional methods. So you can be much more ambitious in the profile of molecule that you're looking for. And, you know, this is yet to be proven out as, you know, we're still many years away of having a, a molecule to be approved. But I think, again, the thesis here is higher quality molecules should lead to lower attrition rate in the clinic. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're, I think, quite rightly zoned in on a bullseye of sounds like T-cell engagers within the antibody space, but there's rings of the target beyond this where you can expand, probably not just into other antibody applications, but protein engineering more broadly. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the space of protein engineering. And I'm not even going to restrict you to therapeutics because there may be approaches beyond therapeutics, right? Where protein engineering is a useful thing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what the other layers of that onion look like for you all as time goes on. Yeah. So, I mean, I would broadly say that this active learning-based approach we're taking here is just as applicable from antibodies to enzymes to very large numbers of different molecular engineering challenges. The real question that you know I spend a lot of time thinking about is what portion of that space does it make sense for any single business to try and take on? And, you know, I mentioned previously that we spent a lot of time and energy building out a wet lab capability to generate the ML grade data. And for me, that's like the crux of this, which is any company who's taking a similar type of approach has to make a massive capital investment in the wet lab setup that they built out to generate data that just simply isn't in the public domain. And my guess is that probably ends up being the factor that ends up limiting the number of different problem spaces they can take on. The second part to that as well is to your point earlier, which is if you find one of these molecules, it costs absolute you know, millions to translate these through into to the clinic as well. And just so from a capitalization perspective as well, there's a question over the, the capital intensity of generating a product in any of these spaces might also end up constraining a business. So certainly what I'm seeing is startups appear all over the place and existing protein engineering companies retrofitting their platforms so that they can take these sorts of approaches. But my guess is that each of these companies will be driven to be quite focused in, in, in one particular area or, or another. So for Lab Genius. The focus for us, at least at the moment, in the context of our own internal pipeline, is developing molecules that can selectively differentiate between healthy and diseased cells. Now, at the moment, we're kind of manifesting that through T-cell engagers, but you can imagine a world in which that's manifested through NK-cell engagers or ADCs or, or a suite of other different modalities as well. But we'll probably expand into those in you know, using strategic partnerships. Yeah, I was going to ask about the steps beyond antibody selection. Every company in biotech and pharma more broadly faces this challenging question, which is where do you decide to take a target and run with it yourself, maybe all the way through clinical trials versus work with many of the at scale partners? How have you thought about that? That's a real challenge, isn't it? In the sense that if you just focus on solely progressing your own molecules, do you then end up underutilizing your platform? And equally, if you end up just partnering, how much of the value can you really capture? So Lab Genius is taking a hybrid business model where we actually do both. And that's sort of quite tried and tested across the biotech industry. But the way that we currently look at it is that the investing behind our own internal pipeline is actually highly synergistic with the partnering model in the sense that in those partnering conversations, if you can come to the table and say, we're eating our own dog food and we're putting our own capital behind our platform and look, it's working. That puts you in a much stronger position than if you're going into those conversations without that data. 
And then on the partnering side, I think the really exciting thing about working with partners is where they have deep expertise across different areas. They can help expand and mature your platform in areas where you just simply wouldn't have the internal expertise to do it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's a is a challenging question. I think you're uh, I think you're right to approach it that way. You and I have something in common, which is we spent a long time doing sciences. Did you do a postdoc or just a PhD? I did a PhD and then started a company. I think you. I don't remember if you did a postdoc or not, but I'd be really interested to hear about your transition from being a scientist to being a CEO, where you have very different, very different day to day. At least in my experience, some of the skills are transferable, but it's a lot of things they don't teach you. In a, in a PhD about running a company. Yeah, and I think the, the biggest challenge there was when you're doing a PhD, especially in, uh, at least in molecular biology or synthetic biology, you almost have to force the universe to manifest whatever it is you're working on. And that ultimately means the longer hours you work, like the more yeah. that you can you can get done and there's no two ways about it. And so, you know, I grew up just pulling the lever of, you know, you want to get more done, just work harder. And the challenge is, is you know, as your company grows, there are only so many hours in the day and pulling that lever just can, in some instances, just lead to burnout. So I think the big challenge I found was one where, you know, learning to delegate, learning to hire a great team who you could trust and whose expertise outstripped your own across multiple different areas, learning how to raise capital as well, and then operating across different financial markets from the zero interest rate, grow, grow, grow scenario to the high interest rate environment that we're in today. And, you know, look where biotech stocks are now and how strategy changes across those different economic environments. So it's been an absolutely wild ride. I still feel like it's day one in terms of learning a lot of these skills. But the biggest take home for me has been just really surround yourself with experienced mentors who can help take you on that journey and help accelerate your growth. And probably one of the most transformative things that we did as a business was to bring on a very experienced chairman who had been an operator, a very successful operator himself, this is Edwin Moses, CEO of Bablinks, and really was able to help transform the business in terms of how we run it, how we think about both financing, operational issues. I would just sort of advocate that any entrepreneur and you know work in biotech finds mentors that they can work with and help progress them on that learning journey. Yeah, that's great advice. You and I, I, you've been incredibly successful in particular on obviously in building the business, but you mentioned fundraising and you all have, um, I think, raised more than $30 million. You've got an incredible set of investors. I suspect that pitching the vision was really challenging in the beginning because it was before machine learning and AI was cool. It's very cool today. It was uh, definitely not that cool in the mid 2010s. I think it was always cool, but uh, to investors, definitely it was not as much of a golden ticket as it is today. And also wet lab, dry lab combo, biotech. These are not easy businesses to raise money for compared to software. What was the biggest challenge you think from that? Like where was the part of the pitch in the beginning that investors just scratched their heads and either you had to change or you had to think about a different way of messaging it? Do you remember what was most difficult? Yeah. I mean, the hardest part was, you know, we were trying to raise our seed round and you know, we were running out of cash and I'd spent a year or something trying to to get a fundraise together and just failing every time. Yeah. You know, I, I can't even tell you the stories that happened. You know, we ended up being scammed out of paying to pitch to people who clearly weren't investors, to traveling all over the country, to people who also weren't investors. It was a really grim year. And Eventually, my wife, who was pregnant with our first child at the time, gave me this ultimatum. She said, James, you've been working on this project for years now, and you've got to get a funding round together before our daughter's born. Otherwise, you have to go and get a real job. And so having that deadline was definitely a helpful forcing function. And 
I'll say that we closed the seed round. I closed it from the hospital car park hours after uh, my daughter oh my was born. I was, there for the, I was there for the critical moment. So got the round together. But over the course of that financing process, the biggest learning for me was you should never be pitching to try and convince an investor of something. You should be finding the investor who already believes in what you're working on and then convincing them that you're the best company tackling that problem. And so looking at it as a, rather than a kind of convincing challenge, looking at it as a matching problem. And after I kind of took that perspective on fundraising as a process, things started to become a lot easier. Yeah, I guess that lends you to having a lot of conversations and having a really good sense in the first conversation of, is this something that you and the investor should spend much time pursuing and not try to convince each other of, uh, of some different idea that they like that isn't actually the thing that you want to do, right? That's right. If you bring an investor in who doesn't deeply understand your space, you know, the big danger there is you end up trying to, and, and this is especially true for technical businesses, but you tend to describe what you're doing through analogy. And when you abstract at that level, there can be a lot of imprecision that's introduced into it. And then you extrapolate from an abstraction and you can end up on a completely different page to your investor. So yeah, I'd always advocate bringing in smart investors and most importantly, investors who you feel there's great chemistry with. I mean, you're going to be working week in, week out with these people for the next 10 years. And whilst everything's going well, that's fine. But you know, when there are invariably times where stuff does go wrong, these need to be people that you feel comfortable picking up the phone to and say, hey, I just had a terrible day and this thing happened and help me think through it. So making sure there's good chemistry, making sure there's a good meeting of the minds intellectually, these are really key things. Was this something you always thought you'd wanted to do? Did you have a mind of being an entrepreneur while you were doing your PhD, for example, or did it come at you from left field a little bit? I think I've always felt inside, I wanted to build something. I think there's that kind of just feeling inside you that, yeah, you wanted to create something to forge your own path. <laughs> I think it also comes from not liking the idea of having a boss maybe as well. But yeah, I think I always felt deep inside me, I wanted to build something. Uh, I would say that I never thought that it would be this hard. And there are plenty of times on the journey where like the rational thing to do would have been just to say, hey, look, I tap out, I'm going to go and find another job. I'm glad I didn't. But I think it is a really tough, tough journey. When we did our first financing, this is like a friends and family round. My two sisters, who are much younger than me, said, um, James, we want to give you a little bit of money. And this is their inheritance from our late grandmother. And I said, you know, I, can't, I couldn't possibly take it. And they said, no, 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 we really believe in you. We really want to take, we really want to back you. And whilst it wasn't much money, you know, a few thousand pounds, I made a commitment to them at that point and just said, hey, look, you know, I'm taking this money, but in exchange for this, like, I guarantee you that the only way in which I kind of tap out is if we go under, we run out of cash. And it was actually that all the years later that was the thing that kept me going. Whenever, you know, I just thought, hey, is this too much? Is this the time to tap out? I just, you know, thought, no, I made a commitment to them. I'm going to keep going. And it does absolutely require the kind of irrational resilience to kind of get through those lows. And you're a founder, you'll know those moments that I'm talking about. Yeah, I saw an interesting interview with the CEO of NVIDIA, which has obviously had an incredible run. And they asked him if what company he would start if he did it again. And he said he just wouldn't start one, period. And uh, I enjoy every minute of it, but it is hard. You're right. Besides the early fundraising pain, and I'm glad you got you cut it in under the wire before your uh, or or just after your daughter was born. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking today. But what other big challenges have there been? Are there any that spring to mind? Yeah, I think the big thing goes back to this question that you asked around what is it like to transition from you know being a yeah. bunch of scientists to being the CEO of the business. And I would say the big thing for me was around delegation in the sense that when you start the business, it's a one two person team or something like you have to understand everything in detail. And there have been times where I've abstracted myself away 
too far and not been in the detail enough and other times where I've been way too much in the detail and have actually missed something much bigger, more important and strategic as a result. And so I think over time, the learning has been, you have to abstract yourself. Like that's the only way in which business can run, but you have to also be able to turn your attention to the thing that's going wrong at any point in the business and very, very quickly get into the detail and really get into the weeds and act quick, make rapid decisions. So that's probably been the biggest challenge. Yeah. How do you go about determining whether something is something that you really want to throw yourself into versus letting somebody else on the team, for example, take ownership of it? Have you built up an instinct or do you have a framework that you use of how you figure out whether you spend your couple hours a week on this fire or some other fire? Yeah, I think the big danger is you split yourself across too many things and then everything just moves by an inch forward. And I've certainly found, at least within the context of Lab Genius, that I can get stuff done is I just say, okay, here's the one big thing that I'm working on at the moment. And it might be a finance round as an example. And then, you know, once that's sewn up, then turn my attention to like, okay, here's the next one thing I'm focusing on. And it might be like a really important hire for the business. And I know that a lot of other CEOs work in a similar way in the sense that a founder CEO often is really good at just like focusing on one thing and getting it done. And using that approach, you can work out what is the highest leverage activity that you could possibly be working on at any given time. Yeah, that's just good time management advice for anybody. Honestly, no matter what you're doing, I think it's underrated to pick one really important thing, focus on it, nail it, and then move on versus having... 10 goals. If you have 10 goals, you kind of have zero sometimes. That's a challenge, right? Because the business has to have 10 goals. At the end of the year, you know, you've yeah. got to get stuff done on every part of the business. But you yourself at any time might just have one goal. And again, it's that kind of decoupling of yourself from the business that can be a challenge as well. Yeah. How have you found partnering with large pharma companies that are many, many times bigger in terms of number of people than you all? Is it frustrating? Is it slow? Or is it really about similar to fundraising, you find the right person who sees eye to eye and then it moves quickly. How, how have you found that to be? Because you work with Sanofi, you work with many yeah. incredibly large and successful pharma companies. I think when it comes to a pharma company, they're like nation states. And just because one person in a pharma company says no, doesn't mean that there's like another research group somewhere else that might say yes to working with you. The thing that I would observe is that these relationships that you build with them, if they embark on a pilot project with you, maybe they don't really care about the pilot project. They really want to see how does the team work? Can you really deliver? And do you get great results over above what they can do internally? And the reason that they take these long-term views is they want to explore different technologies, build the relationship over time and grow them as well. And so I think that the reality here is there's no quick sugar hit. You have to put in the work, you have to build the relationships. It does take time. You have to work your network and understand like where the right point of entry is with any of these companies. But that can be really challenging for a startup who's raising on like a 18-month funding cycle where you know, if they get yeah. one round of investment and the investor says, hey, what do you to get this mega deal with a pharma company? And they're like, mm, it's got to build a relationship first. So, you know, I think the disconnect between the pharma timeframe and financing can be a challenge. I've seen that biotechs work faster. But again, they have sometimes less capital to deploy. So it's a bit of give and take. Yes, that makes sense. I'm curious for you whether there are any technologies that you're thinking about that are just over the hump that people might not be as familiar with today. I really like to ask this almost on a personal level because I hear such interesting things from people that like you are at the leading edge, something that other people may not be thinking about as much, whether it's in your field of protein engineering or 
something more broadly. For example, you mentioned Oxford Nanopore. I'm familiar with a lot of more clinical applications, but it was interesting to hear this different application of the long reads. Are there other things that you're excited about that you think maybe in the next year or two are going to surprise people with what a interesting new wave they might be? Yeah. So I guess I said a lot that we kind of generate the data for our antibody therapeutics in the context of disease-relevant cell-based assays. It's still a cell-based assay. And that is an abstraction of a very complex biological system. And so the thing that I'm excited about is over time, how can we start testing at really high throughput on model systems that are more closely representative of the underlying biological system that we're looking at? So screening on organoids at very, very high throughput, screening on mini tumors, et cetera. So I think increasing biological complexity of the system that you're interrogating and combining that with machine learning is definitely rapidly approaching us as a novel way to approach these challenges. And then on the other side of things, I would just say the continuing refinement of the way in which we think about and talk about disease in the sense that historically you might look at cancer and people would call it like a lung cancer or a liver cancer, but actually at a molecular level, you might describe it as something completely different. And two liver cancers can be very different from one another. I think this continuing refinement of the way in which we look at the disease to one in which you know every cancer is actually unique and heterogeneous and unique in the context of your own genetic background. And then, you know, one step further on that, what do we actually currently reflect on in terms of our own health in the sense that we have genomes, but actually, of course, in our bodies, you have many, many different cells, each with slight mutations to that genome. What does it actually mean to be healthy? And what are the future of therapies that might start to look at actually modifying what we now call healthy states? So I think these are all themes on which I'm really excited to see continued technological innovation. I was wondering, as you were talking about the cell models becoming more and more complex and moving towards organoids and other kinds of models that more closely match biology, I was wondering whether you think it's going to be possible at any point to close that loop in silico in the sense that you generate enough data in the wet lab that you actually then can test 250,000 antibodies because you've got not an actual cell assay to run, but a model of a cell assay that closely enough approximates the real thing that you can do the lab genius equivalent of stockfish playing against another stockfish in chess tens of thousands of times to improve and train. Do you think it's going to be possible to build in silico models of some of these cell systems to where you can get something that at least approximates the lab readout? Or is that a really difficult problem for some reason? The challenge there all comes around transferability of learning. So when we're generating these data and building these models, it's specific for a particular tumor-associated antigen at a particular level. Now, I suspect there are generalizabilities from one tumor-associated antigen to another in terms of how the density of those receptors might correlate between what's the ultimate design. But yeah, the challenge is in transferability of learnings. Right. You'd need to build some kind of sufficiently general model of a cell to achieve that. Correct. And I think the beauty of a lot of biological experimentation is that through automation, you can take the cost of testing down, at which point, why not just run the test and refine the model? I think this is a trend that we're seeing, which is cheaper, better experimental data combined with better models and more transferable learning. So I suspect, depending on the application, we'll see for each application that right balance between experimental testing and validation and pure and silico modeling. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you. This has been an amazing conversation. I assume you, like many growing companies, are always hiring. So if people like what you have to say, they can visit your website. I'm going to guess it's labgenius.com slash careers or something like that. Any other asks that you have of the audience? It's labgenie.us. So that's the URL. 
Yeah, I mean, if anyone's interested, check out the work that we're doing and always keen to hear feedback. I love it when people get in touch. Yeah, great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You taught me a lot and give me a lot to think about. So thanks again so much for your time. Thanks, Patrick. And thanks, everybody, as always, for listening. If you have any feedback, our inbox is always open, podcast at soundogenetics.com. And as always, the thing that we ask is uh, if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend, share it on social media, whatever makes you most comfortable. And if you're really feeling up to it, leave us a five-star review on one of your favorite podcast players. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>